Hello, welcome to the Inside Football Podcast. My name is Joe Simon and I'm itching to get stuck into this one. On this pod, we'll be speaking transfers from across Europe as the teams around the globe prepare for the squads for the new season. And here to help me break it down is one of the greatest European football minds I have come across in my time on this podcast, an absolute guru when it comes to transfers, to personnel, to statistics. You can find him on Twitter at EuroExpert underscore. His name is Alex. Hello to you. You can keep going if you like. That was no, that was, <laughs> it was a, it was a brilliant intro. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, great to have you, mate. It's an absolute pleasure. As I mentioned, we'll be picking out some of the transfers across Europe and how that will impact, you know, the buying and the selling clubs in terms of formation, playing style, uh, finances, things like that. And also, I would love to hear some of your, you know, your best picks of the summer signings so far too. So let's get stuck into it. Hey, let's let's start off with the biggest transfer so far. And then that title may change in the next coming days with, with Messi. But so far, Jack Grealish's 100 million pound move from Villa to Manchester City is currently the biggest transfer of the window. Look, we'll touch on Aston Villa in a minute and what the sale means for them. But we'll start at Grealish and City and how kind of he'll fit into the system under Guardiola. So at Aston Villa, clearly he was their main man. Um, typically, he would start on the left side of a three behind Ollie Watkins, but he would love to drop deep, pick up the ball, drive forward, float around and really control Aston Villa's game. Now, at City, I'm not too sure he'll be able to play that kind of role, but I think he might still find himself in more of a free-flowing midfield role, um, but possibly a bit deeper. Yeah, so I expect him to fit him in as one of those full sakes like he spoke about, where, yeah, just in front of the, the base of midfield, probably be alongside Kevin De Bruyne. And there's good reason for that. I mean, hmm. Grealish, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I've said it too many times before, but Grealish is one of the most unique players I've ever seen in stats-wise, in terms of he only started 26 games of the Premier League last season. Yet across all of Europe, no other player dribbled the ball into the box more than him or carried it in. Done that more than Messi, Adama Traore. All those players usually beat, beat people for that statistic. He was way ahead of them, which would show that he is one of the best creators in Europe. I think a shot creating actually is alongside De Bruyne for that as well. So it's pretty clearly like Pep's idea, I guess. Be getting on the end of chances a bit more because with Grealish and De Bruyne, you're going to have so much creativity just from that midfield pocket and the way they can drop wide as well into the half spaces. Grealish will be doing that as well, won't he? So, yeah, yeah I, I think for, for Pep, he's going to be looking to try and form a good partnership between him and De Bruyne, mm. um, especially since De Bruyne as well. He likes to stay like Grealish. Grealish can move to the left and play like he did at Villa, right, and take people on. And De Bruyne is a bit more, not static's a word, but he's just likely to do that. So mm. provides a nice sort of parallel between the two. We saw last year Yao Cancelo played on the left left back side, but he pushed into midfield and became a bit more central. I think we can expect to see that again, and then he would fill the void of Grealish moving forward to the left. So I'm interested to see how Pep fits them in. He's obviously got a lot of attacking talent. Now, Aston Villa, £100 million is a lot of money, and they made sure they brought in the enforcements they needed before Grealish made the move. Buendia, Danny Ings, and Leon Bailey, the three they, they brought in to fill the attacking void left by Grealish. All great players all offer different things. Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how you think Aston Villa will line up with the three and Ollie Watkins in attack. Yeah, this is where I feel like my brain works backwards, you know, because <laughs> it's Jack Grealish, one of the biggest moves to the suburb. I'm like, that's quite interesting. What Aston Villa doing with that money? Now, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's it. I lo- First of all, I think Villa have been the smartest team in this window in terms of they've got all their signings done before they got the money in, which mm. meant that, like, People like Bayer Leverkusen couldn't say, actually, we want 50 million for Leon Bailey since you've got 100 sitting in the bank. Yeah. Really smart from Villa. 
Um, the Danny Ying signing, I think that's maybe the least good of the, the three, but I still really like it. Maybe a bit more than most people. Obviously, he's a bit older, but I, I'm saying the same thing. I mean, we might have gone to this about Spurs. If they were to lose Harry Kane, you don't want to bring in, you don't want to just bring in an Alexander Isaac. You want to bring in someone who's in their prime and going to fill that goal scoring gap. And I think that's what Danny Ings is for. So yeah. I think that's quite an intelligent signing. And then you combine him with a Leon Bailey who. By Leverkusen, the thing I liked about him, uh, I, I don't know how, how many other people would say this, but for me, Bailey's one of the rarest players in football because he's a left-footed left-winger, and which may sound simple, but in the modern game, most players who are left-footed, most of their careers, like in, on the wingers, most of their careers they've been played on the right because yeah. most managers prefer an inverted player to cut inside and take a shot. It's rare you get someone who's left-footed and plays on the left. And it's actually a really desired quality. Pep Guardiola was in for Leon Bailey a couple of seasons ago, as well as Mikel Yarzabal. And the reason he signed Sano is because playing on the left and you're left-footed means it's a bit easier to do the cutbacks and race on the outside. But you're a little less predictable. So Bailey's a really good signing. and He's always going to have a resale value. And then there's Buendia, who (laughs) I think some people have painted a bit of a risk because... In the Premier League, I think he only got seven assists, if that, off the top of my head, something like that. Might be seven goal contributions. But, I mean, Buendia. But Buendia's like, championship numbers were incredible. It wasn't even just that he was doing lots of creativity. I think he contributed to something like 30 or 40 goals. The thing I really liked is he was making over four uh, four tackles in sessions per game. He was actually yeah. the most defensively proactive player in that Norwich side, which would show that, He's an extremely hard worker. So oh, yeah. Villa have replaced this. They've replaced Grealish and more. You couldn't ask for a better window for them because Sydney have lost their best player. You mentioned Buendia, then only seven assists. He also has only scored one goal in that campaign in the Premier League. Mm. So I think they'd be hoping for a bit more of an output for him. But that's why they brought in Danny Ings and, and uh, Leon Bailey as well. So I think the three of them filling that void, they've done really well there. You mentioned Spurs before. Now, Harry Kane hasn't left yet. We don't know whether we will. We don't know whether he'll return to training. I think he's quarantining currently at the Spurs Lodge so he can still train. But there's a lot to play out there. Putting that aside, uh, they've brought in three players so far, Pierluigi Gallini, Brian Hill and Christian Romero. But I think Tottenham's best bit of business so far is bringing in their new director of football, Fabio Paratici. Now, over the past few years, Tottenham have looked like they've lacked a real transfer strategy. And when they were priced out of their first priority, they looked out of ideas. I think this time they desperately needed the centre-back or or possibly two. So Paratici, he brought in the best defender in Italy and the, the Copa America as well last year. They needed to refresh their squad. The departures of Lamella, Alderweireld and, and more to come were helping them do that. What do you think of Tottenham's business so far? I like it. I don't think it's been the best. With Paratici, I'm still still, I'm still waiting, you see, because, mm. yes, Romero is a brilliant signing. And I think my favourite one is Brian Hill. How he got that done was brilliant. Galini yeah. was a lot more average. And I know he's on the loan, but if he makes 20 appearances, it does become permanent. Yeah. But the, the 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 key thing about Tottenham's targets so far is they've all been in Syria, which when I, I did a lot of research into Paratici for a video actually, and he's only ever worked in Italy. And what I really want from him over the next couple of years, I can forgive him this, this window because he's coming to, let's be fair, uh, a bit of a mess at Tottenham uh, with no manager and everything. But what I want to see from Paratici is him to prove himself as someone who's going to look outside of Italy for his targets. Don't want him to rely on what he knows. And the Brian Hill signing did kind of show that, but just want to see those targets change a bit. But in general, yeah, the business has been good. I think 
As a Galini's quite an average signing, um, loan, so it's not too bad. Hill's my favourite. I think long term that's fantastic. I don't any Tottenham fans. I don't expect him to you know play every game or even half the games this uh, this season. But that's completely fine. You want to bed him in. And then Romero, yeah, defender of the year. And I think I said it before in a couple of Spurs podcasts, he's just going to be so much fun to watch in the way he just shoves people off the ball. Like watching, he's one of those players where I feel like a lot, lots of uh, players, you can watch like YouTube highlights of things, right? And it's like, it, it paints a distorted picture. With Romero, it does actually paint like a very fair picture. He rushes <laughs> out of his defence, makes great tackles and inceptions. And if he doesn't win the ball, he will do whatever it takes to get that ball off that player. Whether that's winning it fairly or like sending them into the stands, which (laughs) I love. (laughs) But yeah, I I love the business so far. It's great. Well, the thing about Romero is he worked very well in a very specific Atalanta back three. Now, I'm I'm not sure if Nuno will will change to that. I think Tottenham probably need to sign another quality centre-back for them to be able to play three centre-backs. Do you think he'll adapt well if it was just the back four? He plays possibly the right side of defence next to Eric Dyer, who's also can be quite erratic, uh, similar to Romero. <laughs> How do you think he'll adapt then when one of them has to kind of stay home and be the sensible one? It's a good question. I think I, I think adapting to a back four, that'll be the interesting thing. Because mm. as you said, Romero's mainly played on a back three. I think first uh, it might have been Bologna and then um, Atalanta. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, in a back four, he can't do what he's doing for Atalanta, charging out, especially in the Premier League where you do get punished that tiny percent more uh, for getting getting behind a striker and running who's running straight towards goal. I still kind of think Nuno will shift to a back three. I think yeah. it's a bit similar to um, Antonio Conte at Chelsea in terms of he's not going to switch to a back three yet, especially since most people's perception of him is that boring Wolves manager who sat five at the back. So yeah. I think he's yeah. going to play four at the back and then when the time is right, shift to a back three and then mm-hmm. it will be less of a fanfare and more of just a, a tactical decision. I think so too. You saw at Wolves, he would often play for the nil-nil at halftime, really shut up shop. I think a lot of their games last year, at halftime, they came in nil-nil. And, you know, Wolves weren't this most solid team last year. They had a lot of injuries, but they were also quite down on their previous years. So I would, that's exactly what Tottenham need is stability, keep the clean sheet. And I think they probably do need to sign another centre-back in, but Christian Romero is a really good start. Uh, let's move on to Leicester City. So they've been active so far. They signed Patson Daka, uh, Sumare from Lille, and Ryan Bertrand as well. Sumare is one of my signings of the summer so far. I think he's brilliant at just 22, but he plays like a veteran. And I think we will likely find him alongside Tillemans or just in front of Ndidi, but he's so versatile and well-rounded that I think it offers something different to Leicester. And he might not be one for this year, but possibly in future years, if Ndidi or Tillemans was to move on as well. Um, what do you think of their business? Uh, I'll start with Dakar, I think. I think yeah. th- this window's actually been an interesting one for Dakar and his, uh, his friend Enoch Mwepu. They both came from the uh, the same club in Zambia and they mm-hmm. both went to Salzburg within six months of each other. I think Dakar came six months after Mwepu. And both moved to the Premier League this season yeah. from Salzburg. Dakar to Leicester, Mwepu to Brighton. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Dakar, Dakar, the thing is, I, I don't think I remember a player being this hyped and this certain for success coming from the Austrian league. Yeah. Like usually someone coming from there, we'd be saying, we don't know how he's going to adapt. But it feels like everyone's saying, wow, he's going to be completely on fire. And uh-huh. in my head, I'm still thinking, you know, but I give him time. Not too sure. But the good thing about Leicester is they've got Vardy and Iacho. And I think yeah. Dakar can afford to play off the right or left. And uh, that'll give him a bit of time to bed in. 
Rufus Sumari, um, Rufus Sumari, a bit of a voice breaker. I think he's, <laughs> I'm, I'm less hot on him. I still think he's okay. a good player, but um, at Lille, someone, I, I got very into Lille last uh, last summer, um, season. I was watching him nearly every week. And Sumari came into the side when Renato Sanchez got injured. Uh, well, that makes it sound like he got one injury. He got like 20 injuries yeah. in a row. Yeah. Um, He was good, but at the start of the season, he was... A lot, he, he proved a lot over the season. Like at the start, he was making quite a few errors. His passing was quite lapsed, but mm-hmm. his numbers really ticked up as he played in the first team. I don't think he's ready to play Premier League football quite yet. I think, it's, okay. as you kind of said, he needs to spend that year out, I think, just training in. But I, th- I think he will have a very good career. I, I'd be surprised personally, though, if he went on to have a uh, like a, a truly world-class career. I think there's a couple other French centre-mids like uh, Tushimeni. I think I think I put him on the same platform as Tushimeni, and I put Camavinga above both of them. He's rumoured to make a move to Manchester United. That'd be a yeah. great move for them. It would, I think it's it gone be... quiet, though, hasn't it? I think so. Hopefully, we'll get to see him. because let, Let's move on to Manchester United, because he would be a great signing. But they have brought in uh, two key players. They need to address centre-back and right-wing. They've done so in Varane and Sancho. Really smart business, I think. Varane, I think, is very straightforward. Like He's just going to slot in next to Maguire in the heart of the fence. I'm interested to know, is it that straightforward for Sancho coming in? Is he just going to fill that hole on the right-hand side? Um, I think it should be. I mean, with, with Sancho, we can't expect him... In the Bundesliga, did a study recently, the fan that the Bundesliga has the worst goalkeepers in Europe. Yeah. So with Sancho, we should uh, get, we should see a slight statistical drop off. But at the same time, I do think he will come into the Man United side and do well. It, but someone that pointed out very uh, clearly recently that Man United have always started slowly at the start of every season, I think for the past three seasons now. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of a hesitancy there. Still, I do think, yeah, I think Sancho should come in okay, same as Varane. I think both, I think United have had the best transfer window so far, probably, mm-hmm. even without signing a, uh, even without signing a DM. I mean, lots mm-hmm. of people calling him to sign and Didi, but I, 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 maybe it's a bit less because I think if they sell Pogba, would have yeah. been great. Yeah, in terms of Sancho, I guess the only thing, the only sort of thing about him is that he was good for Dortmund because he could flip between the left and right wing, whereas I think at United, he's going to be more told to you know you're gonna to have to stay on that right wing because we have literally nothing there please give us some output so i think he'll he'll keep the the width on the right as, as you just mentioned before and i think it might be interesting to see if aaron wambasaka maybe holds back when they have the ball as well kind of creating that back three in center backs which means look they love getting luke shaw on the ball he has a great cross his set piece delivery on him and they'll want him to get forward as much as possible so with the ball i don't think wambasaka will attack as much as he, he did last year i don't think that's his strong suit a lot of people don't think that which will slightly shift their their formation to allow Shaw to advance on that left-hand side. It's an interesting thought, actually. It makes sense as well for Rashford, because yeah. with Rashford, you kind of want him a bit on the inside left. You want to hug in the touchline. So mm-hmm. it would allow him to maybe move inside to join up with uh, with Cavani. And, but yeah, that does make sense, to be fair. I think Sancho as well, flip side of Rashford, he, he enjoys having that space on the right, ready, like where he's planning what he's going to do. Get yeah. a defender on the outside or find a pass. So it does actually make sense, actually. Let's move on to Chelsea. Look, big news from the King, Fabrizio Romano. Romelu Lukaku is uh, is going to Chelsea for a fee around 115 million euros. Now, Chelsea needed the striker. Um, and if it goes through, I think they've got one of the, the top five in Europe. Now, they sold him for 30 mil in 2014. And they're, they're buying him back now for close to 100 mil, 115 mil. Classic so Chelsea. I, 
Exactly. I refuse to say this is good business from Chelsea. It's a smart decision. They needed a striker. I don't think it's good business. But with Mason Mount stepping up like he did last year and Havertz, he looks a little bit more settled and comfortable. Chelsea needed someone to finish those chances that Timo Werner just couldn't do that. So how do you see him fitting in at Chelsea? Um, okay, at Chelsea, I think, yeah, for the, Lukaku is a good style, as you said. It's hard to call it amazing. One, because of the the fee, although my head's kind of got around it a bit now. And the fact <laughs> This, this player's been at Chelsea, I think it's three times, right? I, I can't, I can't yeah, remember off the top of my head. It is. So, yeah, it, uh, Chelsea, it should be... I mean, he, he flipped pretty standardly into the top, in the front three in the middle. And I was actually um, listening to Football Daily yesterday, so probably interesting point of that he should play. He should bring out the best of Werner. Uh, at uh, Inter last season, I think he got 11 assists. So I think that will really help Timo Werner because... Often in that front line for Chelsea, even when Kai Havertz is playing, he was often the sole focus and he'd often get doubled up on by defenders. So having the Kakula, it should take some of the focus off him. But I will be interested to see how well Chelsea do because the, the, the big thing last season, obviously they did miss some huge chances, but their expected goals was kind of... Um, kind of uh, distorted I thought if anyone doesn't know expected goals is a measure of quality of chance mm-hmm. and that suggested Chelsea created the best chance in the Premier League well in actuality they kind of didn't because though they have one of the biggest scores they're also taking some of the most shots so yeah. their, their their value of expected goals was actually quite small they were just having lots of quite okay shots on top of each other which added up to their score so I don't think yeah. the Kaku actually solves all of those all of their issues i'd be interested to see how they how they get uh more creatively out of their team that's really interesting and i i'm interested to see as well how tuchel utilizes him because at inter milan he was a lot more free-flowing than he was say at manchester united on at manchester united he was a lot more back to goal on an island kind of the, the hold up until rashford and the wingers can get through now i heard i heard tuchel kind of saying we needed someone to to play with their back to goal and hold it up a bit now that does indicate to me that Werner will play alongside him but I think his best form was at Inter Milan where he was free to create, to run at defenders, to link up with Martinez. Um, and I don't think he'll do that at Chelsea. What do you think? Yeah, it's a good point. I think he'll do a bit of a mixture of both, but definitely more holding up mm. than at Inter. Like at Inter, he was often just running straight for, like, under Kaku, like charging at defenders and taking them on, which is yeah. really fun. But I think he'll be okay if he's back to go. What the thing I've noticed about Lukaku at Inter Milan is that he's a lot more comfortable using his physicality. Yeah. At, at United, when he had a bit of a poor touch, the ball kind of get away than him. And Inter Milan, he still has those poor touches. But in a similar way to Romero, he'll just bulldoze defenders trying to come in. And I think that will really help him back in the Premier League, where yeah. I think defenders are going to have a, a, a less easy time getting the ball off him than they felt like they used to. Let's move to, to Barcelona. Sad scenes, uh, I thought, at the press conference the other day. Messi will not be continuing his 21 career at Barcelona due to their financial difficulties and a lot of other reasons. And it looks like he'll be, be going to, to the rich boys PSG. And if so, Pochettino will have the headache of squeezing in Messi, Neymar, Mbappe, as well as Di Maria, Icardi, those other players that he has. Alex, if he was to move to PSG, would it be a simple front three of Neymar, Messi, Mbappe? Or what do you expect from him? Do you think he might drop a bit deeper and be more fluid? Oh yeah, I've got. I, 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 no one's actually come at me for this, but I felt like I had a controversial opinion. I think he's going right. to play in sort of in the ten role in a four-two-three-one because okay. Poch is gen- generally stuck with a four-two-three-one at PSG. Sometimes in the big games, it might shift to a four-four-three in possession. But I think he'll have Di Maria on the right, who 
It's often for the, the forgotten member of PSG, but he's been he's still being electric. He's brilliant. He's first, yeah. yeah, still turning 33. He's adapted his game as well. He used to be that dynamic winger. Now he's a lot more. He's a lot more like a you know, fine wine, you know. He's got very, very good vision. He's picking the passes of PSG. So I think it'll be Di Maria on the right and Bappe up front and then Neymar on the left. And then Messi okay. in the middle because if you have to actually look at his heat map for Barcelona, that's generally kind of where he was uh, taking most of his touches, sort of in the central third of the pitch. But also, he, he wasn't really getting any touches inside of the box. So that's why I kind of think you actually... I think Poch might experiment and try and deploy him just off the striker behind him and take him and orchestrate and play behind it as well because usually when you have a number 10, they can kind of be picked up with uh, one of the defensive midfielders. With Messi, I think it's going to tempt uh, the centre-backs in Liga and the Champions League to try and get out to stop him getting the ball, which That's will create space, yeah. Yeah, create space in behind for Mbappe, one of the fastest footballers in the world to run in behind, which may sound simple, but it's mm. one of Mbappe's strongest assets. So yeah, I think I think Messi will be uh, fitting in around the number 10 role, which would be really interesting. That is interesting. I don't think a lot of people would have, would have picked that, but I'll be, be interested to see how that plays out. So let's not forget, they've also brought in Sergio Ramos, Donnarumma, Wijnaldum, Hakimi. Um, so they, they might be a shot to win the, the title in France this year. But um, there's, there's bound to be some some flow-on effect. Like you, you can't, I don't think they can hold Messi in that squad with all the other stars that they have and, and not lose one or two as well as, you know, the wage bill that they're bringing in. Although I'm not sure how financial fair play works anymore. But what do you think? Do you think there's a chance anyone gets squeezed out of that squad? Uh, on one hand, my, my brain says there, there probably is a chance. On the other, I kind of feel like PSG have said, we'll give you like 50k a week, but we'll also give you a skyscraper and guitar if you keep quiet oh, about yeah. it until the end yeah. of our contract. Yeah. They're probably doing something very, yeah. yeah, probably doing something very, very sneaky to get around it all. Because from what I saw, I think the way the wages he was getting paid were like, I think it was like 500, 400,000 a, a week, 400,000 mm. pounds a week. It, it it was not even half as much as he got paid at Barcelona last season. So I definitely think that they're, they're doing something very uh very PSG like uh, to yeah. get around it all. I think so. I think so. We've covered off the couple of the biggest transfers, but I, I'm interested to hear a couple of your unknowns, a couple of your your smartest signings. What do you think of the summer? Okay, okay, that's a good question. I, I've been looking at all <laughs> of the small moves going around. I think I'll give I'll give a few to come off. I think. I think it was Villarreal who signed Boulaidea uh, from Rem in France. He was a player linked to uh, West Ham. Uh, he was a striker in quite a poor team. He scored 13 goals in the first half of the season and tailed off. But I think it's a smart move for uh, uh, for Villarreal. I think he's yep. in his mid-23. Um, I think he's Senegalese as well. Uh, quite, I quite like that move. Uh, other ones, I think RB Leipzig are a team to keep an eye out for. Uh, not just because... Of the big moves, but some of the like uh like Andre Silva, but some of the lesser ones, Brian Brobby from Ajax, that's a great move. I think some some Ajax fans rate him like not as high, but they they think he could have a career like an Erling Haaland looks like he's going to at the moment. Yeah, wow. Very physical, very good striker. Mm -hmm. Uh just a couple of last ones, I guess. Marseille. They played last night in <laughs> one of the most fun games of the season, and it's barely kicked off. Yeah. Uh they looked fantastic and uh Conrad de la Fuente uh, for Barcelona. A name not many people have heard of, an American winger. He was brilliant for Marseille. Look, he was the best player on the pitch quite easily. Set up one of the goals. Yeah, he was completely unpredictable going on the wing, either cutting inside or going on the outside. I think that's a great move. And um, 
finally there was another one. Echenga's under as well. We've got off to a good start on Marseille as well on the opposite yeah. flank. Mar- Marseille are basically saying you want to go to for under the radar transfers. <laughs> They've got like 11 new players. It's crazy. So is Marseille your, your French team? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean I'm mean, still feeling the love to Lille, but this season, my God, like, it might be Marseille after last yeah. night. It was so much fun. Like, did fun. you see... <laughs> Did you see what happened at the end of the game? I haven't caught up yet. No, tell me. <laughs> I'll watch your face when I explain this. So, Marseille started the game really well. Uh, like, Jorge Sampaoli, I think he's the former Chile manager. All the players staying wide, overlapping runs. They look, they're passing the ball at such high tempo against Montpellier. Then, bam, they go 2-0 down, but quick succession. <laughs> One, uh, It was like a goal from a corner, then like a ridiculously nice long shot. Right. Uh, goes into halftime. The fans are booing them, the away fans are booing them. Come out. Uh, the guy I mentioned, Conrad Delafonta, he assists under in a really nice pass. Then uh, Dimitri Payet rolls back the year, scores two brilliant goals. So it's up to 3 2. It's getting to the 89th minute. All of a sudden, um, all, all of a sudden, there's a bit of commotion because throughout the game, the fans have been throwing objects onto the pitch. And uh, one of them's thrown a water bottle, Matteo Guendouzi. And as Guendouzi oh, does. Oh, no, not Guendouzi. He, <laughs> he's, picked, he's picked it up, gone to the Montpellier fans, gone, is this yours? Is this yours? Is this yours? And just passed it aside. He's turned around, <laughs> another like two litre bottles pelted at his head. Um, the, the ref stops the game, he walks off the pitch. Yeah, <laughs> he, he just completely walks off. I think he wanted the team to follow, but the team stayed on the pitch because they kind of oh, wanted no. to continue the game. Yeah, the, the, the refs staying inside the tunnel. Eventually, the team comes off. What looks like like the, the club president of Montpellier gets on a microphone and uh, it says, "What well, imagine the French like translated from French is? Can you stop being fucking pricks and can you just like stop throwing things on the pitch?" <laughs> the the team comes back on the pitch. They're still throwing things. Ref comes back on after like three minutes. I don't know what he was doing. He must have been fuming. Then they play the <laughs> remaining seven minutes and the game finishes. My God, the French League. you got to keep an eye on the French League. That stuff happened. Gwen Doozy is the worst person I reckon you could throw a water bottle at. The league, this happens like every week. And then they're going to throw Messi into this. It's oh, going to be pitch invasions. It's going to be madness. That's it for today's show. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to us at Inside underscore F4 Pod. And a big, big thank you to Alex for jumping on the show today. As I mentioned, you can find him on Twitter at EuroExpert underscore. Make sure you give him a follow. His videos are brilliant. Thank you, Alex, for jumping on. And I'm sure we'll speak to you soon. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me on.